we're finishing Hebrews today, in Hebrews chapter 13, and uh, if you haven't been with us before today, or maybe not the whole time, we've been started in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and, and we went all the way through, and so we started in September and took a couple of breaks here and there for a few reasons, uh, and today we're, we're finishing this thing, and uh, I feel like, you know, after, after music that was so wonderful and worshipful music that was so great, uh, for you baseball fans, you know when a, a, a starting pitcher goes in and like, throws like seven perfect innings, but he's like totally gassed and, and he can't go anymore, right? And somebody has to come in and close for maybe the last two or, or one inning. And um, you just, that, that closer just doesn't need to screw it up, right? That's how I feel right now following the music today. It's like, just, just land this thing. And so, you know, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but um, man, there is, there is just something special that has happened today. And I, I, I'm prayerful that you have been receptive to that, all right? Um, I really think that the pulpit is not the place to get political, uh, but being that it's the last message in the Hebrews, I asked uh, ChatGPT to write a summary of Hebrews in the artificial intelligence words of Donald Trump. So, I just, it's, it's an artificial intelligence engine. If you don't know what this is, I didn't make these words, a computer made these words to sound like he's speaking them. So, if you haven't been with us in Hebrews, here's the summary up until this point. I'm not going to do an impression, although it might slip in from time to time. It says, the book of Hebrews, folks, let me tell you, it's tremendous. It's all about faith, and let me tell you, I know a thing or two about faith. The author, a fantastic person, he's got a lot of great things to say, believe me. The book talks about Jesus, who's a winner, okay? He's the real deal, folks. The author compares Jesus to all these other people from the past and shows how he's greater than all of them. He's the top, folks. The absolute best. And let me tell you, that's huge. The book also talks about the importance of perseverance and not giving up like I never give up. <laughs> that one got me. It's a, <laughs> it's a powerful message that reminds us to stay strong and keep pushing forward. You know, this book talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You'll never hear Dr. or Donald, Dr. Donald Trump talk about the Old Covenant and New Covenant. I promise you that. But this guy does, artificial intelligence version. The old ways, they had their purpose, but they couldn't save us, folks. It's all about Jesus and the New Covenant he established. It's a fresh start, a better way of doing things. We got direct access to God now through his sacrifice, and that's tremendous, believe me. So, in a nutshell, the book of Hebrews is about having faith in Jesus, staying strong, enduring, embracing the New Covenant, and following the example of those who came before us. It's a tremendous book, folks. you got to check it out. It's all about winning in life, and that's what we're here to do. I thought that, that was really great. So, a good summary indeed. Um, there's the thing, and that last part is, is, obviously, it's silly. The whole thing is silly. It's all about winning in life, and that's what we're here to do. There's something to that last part, because I mean, the fact of the matter is, winning is not through putting down your opponents, like you may have heard from the actual version of that person. Winning is through tethering ourselves and latching on to the one that we often sing about, having victory in Jesus, right? That's the perseverance of the believer, and that really is what is at the heart of this book of Hebrews. It's through persevering with faith to the end that our victory is in Jesus, not in ourselves, and that the world and this life may put us down, but God has given us something far greater than this life, and that is the life in the age to come. And so, as we finish the book of Hebrews, I do feel like a closer that's going to blow it, but, man, I'm so excited to just put a bow on this thing, and I really hope that it has blessed you and your family as it has me and mine. So, Hebrews 13, let's look at verses 
18 through 25 as we end today. Hebrews 13, 18 through 25, it says this. The author of Hebrews says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send your greetings. Send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. Like a lot of the letters that you see in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews ends with sort of some final exhortations and a greeting. And this is where we see just how much of a letter this book really is. You know, what we've seen in Hebrews has not been so much of a letter. You know, when I write a letter, I use personal pronouns. I talk about I, and I talk about you, and how we have this relationship. But so often in the book of Hebrews, we haven't seen a lot of personal pronouns talking about his own life. Instead, he focuses on a lot of doctrinal things. It feels like a doctrinal treatise about all these uh, amazing theological truths about these these lofty words that are deeply rooted in Jewish tradition. It's a book written to Jewish Christians after all, but that's the thing that we've seen over and over again in the book of Hebrews. But today we see just how much of a letter this book really, I mean, we just read it, right? Didn't you see that the tone has shifted from doctrine to the heart of a man who loves people, right? This is a letter after all. And so as we are wrapping this thing up, again, we called the whole walk through the book of Hebrews greater. Uh, The word for greater or better is used so many times in this book alluding to who Jesus is in comparison to all the other things that the author has compared him to. He's greater than Moses and angels and the law and the prophets and the priesthood and on the sacrificial system and all of it. He's greater than that. And so today I simply want to show you one more time the greatness of our Lord Jesus And as a result, the greatness of the life to which we are called. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want us to see that we can know our great God through four ways. And I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, okay? Number one is through a greater calling. The greater calling. Obviously, I mean the calling of what it means to follow Jesus, which is a great calling, and it is a lofty and weighty one at times. In verse 17 that we looked at last week, and I'm not going to read it right now, but in verse 17, we we looked at how the Hebrew believers had uh, these leaders, these pastors and shepherds, and this guy that's writing this talked about obeying them and submitting to them. They're keeping watch over your souls to to not let them do that with groaning, but with joy in their hearts. And so he's really hit on this relationship between leaders and Christians, Christians and their pastors, this church and the leaders that are ministering to them. And so now what's going to happen is he's going to transition to the author speaking of his own situation, which is likely meaning that he is one of those leaders. Perhaps he's one of their pastors or a minister to their souls. He certainly speaks that way. And this is how he begins in verses 18 and 19, where he says, pray for us, for we are sure, notice the we, it's, it's, a, it's a personal pronoun, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. He says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I, there's a singular pronoun, I may be restored to you the sooner. The instruction here is very simple. He wants their prayer. 
He's saying that I'm praying for you, which we'll say in just a moment. But right now he's saying, I want you to pray for me, their leader. I want you to pray for me, he's saying. There's a couple of things that can be gathered, and really a lot of things that can be gathered from just these two verses. But namely, number one, the author has stated that aligning with Jesus has gotten many believers in prison. He's already said that, right? He's talked about believers being thrown in prison and being mistreated because they are Christian people that align themselves with Jesus. The author has also written about sticking by and and staying with those that are imprisoned. At the end of chapter 10, he mentioned this. He also mentioned it more recently in chapter 13. Look at verse 3, just for some context. He said, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. And so he's written about sticking with those that are in prison and those that are mistreated. I have a theory here, and it's not one that it's mine alone, but many commentators believe that the author may himself have been in prison for being a Christian. I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, he's talked a lot about that, sticking with those in prison, those that are suffering in chapter 10, chapter 13. And he's going to even talk about Timothy in just a moment, who is in prison in verse 23. So perhaps he himself is in prison for being a Christian. Well, whatever the circumstances, the author does a couple of things. Number one, he assures them that he has a clear conscience about the manner of life that has led him to the place that he is now. And it does appear to be a place of suffering because he says, pray that I will be restored to you. There's some sort of a hardship there, perhaps imprisonment. He asked them to pray that he'll be restored to them soon. He firmly believes that he has served faithfully and honorably. That's what you see in verse uh, 17, or in verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18 there. He served faithfully, honorably. He believes that. And so it seems that his obedience has led to him being in prison himself. Again, done in verse 23, you see, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Again, it implies there that he was in prison because he himself was also preaching Christ. And so here he speaks in these verses, similar to the way that Paul, a different New Testament author, spoke. Another guy, by the way, well acquainted with suffering imprisonment. When Paul was on trial in Acts chapter 24, uh, he's before Felix, I believe. In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, he told Felix, he said, so I always take pains. I want you to hear those two words. I always take pains to have a clear conscience It's the same words that that are used here in this passage in Hebrews. To have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Same author, Paul, 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with, he says two things, simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Then in the same book, 2 Corinthians 4 Verse 2 says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Throw back up there 2 Corinthians 1, 12, if you will. I want to point out, and I'm getting somewhere with this, okay, but focusing on what we just read there about having a clear conscience in verse 18 of this passage in Hebrews. I want you to look at this verse on the screen in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 1. He mentions these two things. He mentions sincerity, or I'm sorry, simplicity and godly sincerity. What does that mean? Because those those kind of are confusing terms. Well, if you look look at a, a word study and look at what those words are really meaning in that context, when he says that we've conducted ourselves with simplicity, he means that we have taken God at his word. We haven't twisted it to modify and meet our expectations. That's why he says in that same passage that he's not doing things by earthly wisdom. 
He says that there would be an easier way to do this that's more appealing to people. We haven't gone that way. We haven't cut corners. We have taken God at his word, not twisting and modifying to meet our expectations or to make things more comfortable for us as believers is what he's saying. The second thing he says is godly sincerity. It's his way of saying we have preached God's word and aligned ourselves with Christ in a way that has no gimmicks. There's no gimmicks here. There's no pulling our punches. We don't have hidden motives. We're not making money off this for gain. We're not manipulating people to tell them what they want to hear, tickling their ears, maybe a way that we would phrase that. Here's the thing. Even if it gets us in hot water in this world, we must be willing to do what Paul did. Acts 24, 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience. I take pains to have a clear conscience, even if it gets him in hot water, in other words. And guys, that must be true of us as well. This passage is certainly true of a church leader in Hebrews, but man, it is certainly the calling of every believer both then and now. And that is that your calling is not one of social acceptance, of comfortable circumstances, of the praise of man. That's not our calling. That's worldly wisdom. That's figuring out a way to be winsome and and to be welcoming by the culture. That's not our calling. Will you be willing to take pains from man in order to find peace with God? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing for life to be hard if it means that you're godly? Students, that's a hard message for you to hear because you are immersed in the world of peer pressure and the fear of man and what it looks like to be accepted and have friends to be popular, to be good looking, or whatever it may be, to have a following on social media, are you willing to not have those things if it means that you have God? And it's a question for all of us. That's not true of just students. We struggle with peer pressure in a different way. We phrase it differently. It's the fear of man. Wanting to be a people pleaser, right? Are we willing to take pains if that's what the calling takes? Does the greater calling mean you go low sometimes? if it means that you were received and accepted and embraced by God. Paul says that he refused to practice cunning and to tamper with God's word, to ease his status, to heighten his acceptance is what he's referring to. The word for that is being winsome. You know what that word means, winsome? Winsome is a word that you may not know, but you need to. The word winsome means attractive or appealing in appearance or character. Specifically, it refers to someone that's trying to garner uh, acceptance or approval. And so you're, you want to be winsome. It's like college administrators or, or admissions people. They want to be winsome. They want to say, there's something here for you, and we want you. We want you. You can come too. Guys, the church cannot be winsome. We can be loving, but we cannot say, no, there, you can be just like that. You can, you can hold on to that lifestyle. Well, no, no one here is perfect. You can, you can keep, keep that sexual relationship it's okay. We, we, we want you to. You don't have to change. You can, you can just come. The reason I want you to know that word is because so often right now what you're hearing in churches and people that are professing to be Christians is an evangelism technique to increase their number and say, oh, we're not so different. Our values aren't that far apart. And it's a way of watering down the truth. It's taking worldly wisdom. It's watering down what is truth Truth draws a hard line, folks. It draws a hard line. And so it waters it down. What Paul's saying is we're not going to water things down. We're going to keep a hard line, even if that means we take pains. He says we're not going to be winsome. There's a big difference between we're not so different after all. We can, we can figure, in Paul's words in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
we must not be ashamed of the gospel. Even if it makes us enemies, we can love people well. We can speak the truth without being jerks. We speak the truth in love. I just noticed, man, if the author is in prison, notice he doesn't ask for bail money. He doesn't ask for a jailbreak. He doesn't even ask for his physical needs to be met. He asks for prayer from them. He asks for prayer from them. I think there's a word of application. that There's something that it's a good thing for us to pray for our brothers and sisters to finish well. To finish well. To live the life faithfully. To persevere to live with a clear conscience, to act honorably, to behave in the world with godly sincerity, not earthly wisdom. You know, every time, speaking of prayer, every time the Spirit of God moved in a big way in the book of Acts, you know what was involved? Prayer. This church will die if we are not praying people. It will die. Because the prayers of the saints are the glue of God's people. Every time you see the Spirit of God move in a major way in the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, prayer is involved. We must be people of prayer, lifting up brothers and sisters, lifting up our leaders in the church, because it's a great calling. The second thing is that it's a great, we have a great caller, a greater caller. Obviously, we're referring to God here. He's the one who's given us the calling. You may have in your Bibles uh, little subheadings, right? And, and this may be one of the subheadings in your Bible, the word benediction. You guys know that word benediction? It's a word that's not used so much uh, in, in modern day anymore. It's one that was really popular a little bit more back in the day. Benediction is, is something that the last, it would happen the last thing in church services. A lot of time, one of us, me or, or Sam, may get down here and give a, a word of benediction. It's a, it's a word out the door is what it is, right? It's bestowing a blessing or uttering a blessing uh, to God's people. That is often found in letters, and it's here, right here in these verses, verses 20 and 21 specifically. This is the benediction. Look at verse 20. It says, now, may the God of peace, mm, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Are those big words? I mean, those are powerful words, right? I mean, it reads like a benediction. We're going to look at one verse at a time. These are huge statements of praise unto God. And I'm going to really quickly hit four of them in, underneath this second kind of main thing that we're looking at. And so they're going to go ahead and throw, put all four of them on the screen so that we can see them if you don't mind. You got those? There we go. Of peace, of power, of love and care, and of faithfulness. And if you want to write those down, you can, but we're going to look at them real quick, Okay. Huge statements of praise unto God that you see right there in verse 20. The first one is, he's a God, the caller, he's the God of peace. The God of peace. That's what he says. Now, may the God of peace, he starts with that. Those words, God of peace, should really be interpreted the God who gives peace. He's not just the God of peace, he's the God who gives us peace. You've got to remember, man, the readers were outcasts. These Christians were outcasts of society. They were experiencing stress and conflict and uncertainty. Their things were being taken from them. They were being physically mistreated. They had been shamed and mocked. Don't you understand how radical it is then for the author to say to them and remind them that you are possessors of peace. God's peace. Peace was far from their circumstances, but peace could reside in their souls. How? Because true peace hails from God alone in the name and the work of Jesus Christ. 
That's peace. And the world may be in shambles, but we may have peace that goes into eternity. But there's a second way that we can talk about this. Guys, it is not a small thing. We don't have peace in this life, and yet we can have peace in our hearts. But it is not a small thing to be able to say those words, God of peace. In other words, God's disposition towards sin is one not of peace. Of, it's of conflict. God is not at peace with sin. Are you a sinner? Yeah. What's God's disposition toward you then? I mean, left to our sin, it's not peace. <laughs> It's conflict. I mean, and that's, that's a hard avenue to take for us. But that's the truth is that naturally when we come into this world, our relationship with God is not a relationship of peace. God's disposition towards sin is one of conflict and wrath and judgment and not good things for us. But God's disposition toward those who are in Christ is one of peace. That's why when Jesus is born, remember the angels said, they said, Peace on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. How can they say that Jesus is bringing peace when God is a God of wrath on sin? Because Jesus came to put to death sin. That's peace, man. If it were up to us to achieve peace with God, we would remain eternal enemies with him. But he is the prince. God, God has given us the prince of peace. And that is radical, man. Because you don't have to wait until the end of life to see, yeah, was I good enough? Did I measure up? Did I do more good than bad? You know, Muslims have to wait, according to their theology. They have to live a life and, and do these things and try and try and try, and then get to the end of life, and we'll see if God's disposition toward me is one of peace or if I bear the conflict. Do you know how nightmarish that is? Whew. I don't know about you, man, but I don't think I'd cut it. In fact, I know I wouldn't cut it. Because our message is not a message of let's wait and see. Our message is a message of it is finished. It has been accomplished. Salvation is final. That's a message of peace, man. We don't have to hope that God will respond to us with peace because he has proven it in the person and work of Jesus. He's also proven it through Jesus' resurrection. The second thing is he's a God of power. And we see this in his resurrection when it says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, right? That's the power. He brought Jesus back from the grave. Guys, in other words, Jesus' powerful death was not, I know this is going to sound weird, Jesus' powerful death was not enough to give us hope. He had promised not just a saving death. It had to be followed by a powerful resurrection and new life for those who saw it. Not to perish, John 3, 16, but to have eternal life. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's Paul's way of saying died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. The resurrection is important, y'all. 1 Corinthians 15 still goes on, verses 21 and 22, though, when it says, For as by a man, that's Adam, his first sin, came death through Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Listen, church, a promise is only as good as the reliability of the one making it. A promise is only as good as the reliability of the one making such a promise. 
If Comcast promises you fast, reliable internet, you may want to get that in writing and not get your hopes up. Because the promiser is not a reliable source. And if you work for Comcast, then I'm sorry, that was really messed up of me to say. Um, I didn't check to see if any of you guys were employed by them first. A promise is only as good as the reliability of the one making it. Guys, if Jesus promises eternal life, even if he says and does amazing things, if when it's all said and done, he himself cannot defeat death and have new life, we would be fools to think that he could do anything different for us. But our God is greater than death, and that grave could not hold him because he's a God of power. He's also a God of love and care, which is that third sub-point of love and care. And he's going to get into this now. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, here it is, of great care, the great shepherd of the sheep. Man, what a word, shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Sheep are aimless. They're vulnerable creatures, and you've probably heard those things. They desperately need someone to take care of them. They are, they are truly wanderers. They can't even hardly feed themselves and find food and pasture and, and still water by themselves. And so they need a shepherd to minister to them and to care for them. Obviously, you see the analogy then that Jesus is a the shepherd. Therefore, we are the sheep of Jesus' pasture. And Christ loves his sheep with pastoral, sacrificial care. That's why John 10, when it talked about the good shepherd, says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd does what? You know, lays down his life for the sheep. All of the ideal provisions of the good shepherd of Psalm 23 are realized in the good shepherd of John 10. He's a God of love and care. He's greater. The fourth little sub-point there is that he's a God of faithfulness. And that's the last part. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, it says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I mean, you can't get the word covenant. Agreement, eternal agreement, without hearing faithfulness there. You can't get there without hearing God's faithfulness. That word eternal is doing some very heavy lifting there. By the blood of the eternal covenant. A huge premise of the book of Hebrews is that the covenant of works, the covenant of the law is fading away. Them trying to work and and gain God's favor by, by working and sacrificing and eating right, it was a failing system. In Hebrews 8.13, it spoke of this when it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, the old one, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Now, for us, there may not be much of a jolt with that. But for the original audience, there would be a jolt that came with that statement, that you could never earn your way by merit. It doesn't matter how good the sacrifices are and how well you've obeyed the dietary restrictions, whatever it may be. God earned your way by grace, not by your merit. God earned your way by his grace, not by our merit. You don't have the merit. It's an eternal covenant. I love that it says eternal here. It's an eternal agreement by grace. The reason that's so significant, please hear this, is because there will never, ever, ever come a day when the grace payment of Calvary and the empty tomb that followed will be insufficient to save to the uttermost. It's an eternal covenant. Never again will there be a day that you are separated from God again. Never again will there be a day you have to say, I don't know, I've really messed up. I did this really bad thing. The bad things of your life that are never ending until Jesus comes, those bad things, Jesus destroyed them at Calvary. Eternally destroyed them at Calvary. An eternal covenant. And because of that, 
knowing the greater. The third major thing that I want us to see, we have a great calling. We have a greater caller, but we also have a greater equipping. We have a greater equipping. And guys, this is good news, man, because life is hard. Fighting sin is hard. And it is a blessing that we have a special, a greater equipping. That great God, the benediction continues in verse 21. It says, that great God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The word equipping. Well, what does God give us? What's the equipment, right? Is it like a leather-bound Bible? It's like, oh, man, I'm really, I got it now. Now that I've got this, this fancy book, I can really do it. It's not a leather, it's, it's God's word, right? That's part of his equipping for us. God has equipped us with God's word. He has armed us. That's why he called it the sword, right? The sword of the Spirit, God's word. We also have the church. That's part of our equipping. God's church, these people around you, they're not just people that go to the same, they go have the same Sunday morning weekend plans as you do. They're your church family if you allow them to be. And they're part of your equipping for your encouragement, for your accountability, for your exhortation. God's given us his church. But most importantly, he's given us and empowered us through the work of his Holy Spirit. That's our equipping. God's Spirit empowers us. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you a helper, a counselor, so that you can go and keep my commandments. That counselor is God's spirit that indwells believers. So that the passage doesn't really say that. It says that he equips you with everything good, but I'm telling you the things that maybe are behind the text there. But why does God give those things to us? Why does God give us his spirit to work within us? That is explicitly mentioned. Equip you with everything good. That, so that, because for the reason of that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, that we may do his will. Do the math for a second. If you need God's empowering in order to do his will, then that means if he doesn't do the empowering, guess what you can't do? You can't obey God. You can't do God's will apart from a supernatural empowering from him. This message, this book is all about perseverance. But perseverance isn't a work of man's morality, of your grit and your strength and your power. It's a work of God's power, as it says here, working in us. You have this image of a potter with clay, right? that he's molding and making. And if not for someone's divine and wonderful hands on us as Christian people, we have no chance of being strong enough to handle the times that we get dropped. But through the grace of God, he has equipped and empowered his people, working in us. Don't miss that phrase there. We need God's help to do his will, namely to persevere and specifically to suffer. The way that he phrases this life he says, which is pleasing in his sight. Pleasing is a sacrificial term. They had to offer pleasing, the right type of sacrifices in order to be accepted by God. The reason that matters is that God did not create you to go and look for fullness and fulfillment. He created you to go and live a worshipful life. Isn't this world all about fulfillment? I mean, isn't that what you see? That's what every ad campaign is built on. You're not complete until you have Clorox. What? Like, you want to find fulfillment? You need this television. And we kind of scoff at the like, what? What are you talking about? But at the same time, we want and we want and we want and we seek. And those are silly examples. But the world wants so badly for you to find fulfillment right here. That's the devil's schemes, is it not? Did he not say in the, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? No, no, no. 
God just doesn't want you to have, right? He just doesn't want you to find fulfillment, I'll paraphrase. He doesn't want you to have this thing. He's keeping it from you. Fulfillment is found in that. Guys, God did not create you to go and look for fullness and fulfillment. He created you to go and live a worshipful life. But here's the kicker for that, is that these things, fullness, fulfillment, worshipful life, those two things are not in competition with one another. They're not in competition with one another. Your fullest life is the one in which you do what you were called and created to do. Worship. Your fullest life, your greatest fulfillment, I'm going to make you a promise. Your greatest life that you could possibly live is one that to the very greatest extent, you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You will never feel more fulfilled than you do when you're doing that. You know why? Because you're a tool. And when a tool does what it was created to do, it's satisfying. Get you some homework. Go home and get on YouTube and type in infomercial fails. Go do that. You want to laugh? You ever see infomercials? You know what they do. They start out in black and white, and it's somebody that's like trying to crack an egg, and they're like, because cracking an egg is really difficult, apparently. But it starts in black and white, and then it's like, have a, have a hard time cracking an eggs. Find it impossible to make breakfast. What? <laughs> right? having a hard time carrying your garden hose across your yard, and then it shows some guy in black and white that's like tripping over this garden hose. It's like, what? Have you ever done that? No, I have never done that. I've never fallen over a garden hose. I don't know. Or maybe wash Have a hard time washing dishes, and it's somebody that's like got more water on them than in the sink. Like, who are these people that they're... You go look that up. Go look at infomercial fails, and you'll laugh your head off. Those infomercials make you feel like Superman because you can butter toast correctly. You know what I'm saying? The thing is, you, those things are ridiculous because you see people using tools in the ways that they're not meant to be used, right? You're a tool in the hands of a holy God. And he's created you for a purpose. A hammer is meant to drive nails, not screws. If you use it incorrectly, you'll have consequences. And so you were created for a purpose. And it wasn't to find fulfillment in this life. You weren't created to have a lot of fun you're created to worship God. And the kicker is that those things are not in competition. When you are living as the tool that God created you to live as, you will find your greatest fulfillment in this life. Those things aren't in competition with one another. It doesn't leave you having that infomercial internal chaos and frustration as if godliness and fulfillment were mortal enemies. Guys, you are equipped to live and bear this life, not under your own strength, but because you're a tool in the hands of a holy God for his glory, empowered by his spirit to go and be fulfilled. It's just not found here. In Christ alone, you're properly equipped, created to honor him, and you were created for joy. A great verse to commit to memory is Psalm 1611. God doesn't want you to be miserable. Listen to this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is, say it out loud, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are, say that, pleasures forevermore. I mean, there is something to that, is there not? I think media tells you that, that Christianity is just no fun, right? Oh, it's just miserable, and those people are just sticks in the mud. They're just religious monks that don't have it. Are you kidding me? Guys, pleasure forevermore? I'll tell you what the world does. The world tells you this is where pleasure is, and it overpromises and underdelivers every time. That's why when you go get drunk with your buddies, you feel like a shell the next day because you're not doing what God called you to do. 
But that's why when you minister to someone and serve in your church, it's hard to work yourself up to that, right? But when you get done, what do you think? Man, that was fulfilling. But the blinder that's pulled over our heads is that, oh, that's not fun. Oh, that's not going to leave me happy at the end of the day. It's just a lie, man. You're a tool, and God created that tool for a purpose. And when you function within that purpose, man, it is so liberating, and it is fulfilling. It's through Jesus, and it's for Jesus. It's what it says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. One more thing, and then we're done. Greater grace. Man, this is a great way to end this thing. Greater grace. That's what we see in God, right? He's a God of so many great things. We have a great calling, a great caller. We have greater equipping, but we also have greater grace. And I love ending right here. Author goes on and says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly. Pause for just a second. Briefly? Am I right? We've been here for like nine months. Okay? I'm just saying. Even if you were to sit down and read this from beginning to end, you'd think, that took a while. Yeah. Pastors, am I right? Don't laugh at that. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. He says, uh, bear with. Bear with my word of exhortation, a message of exhortation. Those words that he uses there are indicative phrases of a sermon. This isn't a theological treatise. It's a sermon. He's giving them a presentation of things to consider as a leader, as a shepherd over their souls. And the thing that he wants them to consider is that Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is greater, y'all. He's greater. And in a world that wants to compete for your affections, just hear this pastor say that nothing is more worthy of your affection than our Christ Jesus is. Persevere to the end. I said this at the beginning, um, back in September when we began, and that is that the book of Hebrews is written by a Hebrew to Hebrews to tell them to stop living like Hebrews. That's a good way to remember that. And what that means is that these guys, in their Hebrew tradition, they've placed a lot of emphasis on works. Okay? They've placed great emphasis on doing and on achieving. They've placed great emphasis on dietary restrictions on bringing the right sacrifices, on looking on the outside like holy people, trying and trying and trying. And I think that that's why the author ends with an amazing word in verse 25. I saved it for last. He says, grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. Not works, not effort, not merit. He says, grace, not law, grace be with all of you. It ends with a reminder of grace to a people who struggled to no longer hope in their works and their religiousness. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Grace is unmerited favor. In a word, I don't know if there's a better word to summarize the word gospel than grace. There's nothing that you did to earn and achieve God's favor. And so often, You hear a heartbreaking thing, man, and it's, I know that I need to be in church. I know that I need to, I know that's what I need, but I'm just so far off. I need to clean up some things first. That's why 
And you got people that drop off their students on a Wednesday night and then phew, they know the value of that. People at Awana drop off their children and then they go because they, they don't feel like this is a place where they can be. I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but that's the case for many. Is they, well, those are religious people, and I'm not there yet. But they know the value of it or else they wouldn't put their kid in student ministry or in Awana. Can I just say, if that's you today, there is no merit of any individual in this room save the merit of being wrapped in the merit of Jesus. There is no goodness. Our best works are just filthy before a holy God. And God's natural disposition, sadly, toward us in our natural state, it's conflict. And that conflict, apart from the work of Jesus, leads to a real place of eternal torment called hell. But the word gospel means good news. And it's all through this book. Because the message of Hebrews and the message of this Bible is that God saw us in our helpless state where the law could do nothing to help that helplessness. And he entered in himself. Jesus, God himself stepped into the pit of our own destruction and said, I'll go into the pit so that you can come out of it. Guys, the good news of the gospel is that you have nothing that you can do to escape the wrath of God and the punishment because of our just sin. But Jesus has stepped into darkness and lit up that darkness and saved us to the uttermost. Praise be unto God. I will have you gain nothing from this, save that Jesus is greater than any possible destination that you could find in this life or in the next. Save it be in Jesus, man. We must find hope in Christ alone. I want to end by reading some lyrics, and then we're going to sing them in just a moment. Grace be with all of you. It's a song that you, you may know. Many of you probably know this song. It's called Grace Greater Than Our Sin. It says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Can you guys just testify to that for a moment? Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Verse 2 says, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail? To wash it away. Look, there's flowing a crimson tide, his blood, right? Whiter than snow you may be today, not by our actions, right? Verse 3 then says, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace Receive The chorus says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon. You know who needs pardon? A prisoner. Prisoners of sin. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater. Greater than our sin. What a wonderful hymn.